Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast. Brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, Traeger Grills, Costa Sunglasses, Turtle Box Audio, and Orvis Fly Fishing. In today's episode, I sit down with Meredith McCord and discuss how she went from chasing bass in Texas ponds as a kid to chasing records all over the world. Meredith holds more than 220 world records, hosts travel trips, and has fished with some of the world's greatest guides. This podcast was recorded at ICAST, so you might hear some background noise at various parts. We hope that you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And then it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. No one else knew anything anyway, and you're just might definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's the old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? That's so look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Well, hey, Meredith, thanks so much for sitting down and joining me on the podcast. We've been working about a year to get this together, and it's great to sit down and get an opportunity to hear from you. Well, thanks, Hunter. It's fine. It's great to finally see your face and to meet you in person. Yeah, well, l- l- let's get into your story about how you got into fishing, because I think, um, you know, a lot of people know you for world records and a lot of people know you for your travel. And, and But I want to know what, what, as a kid, as somebody young, what really got you into this and, and what made you fall in love with the outdoors? You know, I think that's it's a great question. And um, I've pondered it a lot of, you know, is it genetic? Can you genetically be inclined to like the outdoors? But I think it's actually just how I was raised. Um, Mm -hmm. I came from a family of outdoorsmen, uh, both paternal and maternal. Grandparents were fishermen, hunters, and uh, my parents. And when I was, you know, I was the oldest of three. And Mm -hmm. when Um, Even before I could even walk, my dad had a fishing rod in my hand, whether it was right outside of Houston in a bass pond or a tank, as we call them in Texas, Mm -hmm. or um, we had a summer home in Canada on Lake of the Woods, Ontario. And so I would be jigging in the boathouse and I have pictures of me um, sitting in my dad's lap. I mean, again, before I could actually even walk, I was holding a fishing rod. And um, but as I grew the three of us, my brother, sister, and I, all three were exposed to the great sport. For But for me, it, it, something resonated within mm. me. And I just, I mean, I absolutely loved it. And uh, I have a picture of, too, of me. Okay, so this is how it goes. In Canada, we would go up there every summer, and my dad would telecommute for his business. But we are in a log cabin, okay, in a population. Um, the town's population was about 500 people. So... Mm-hmm. No TVs in the house. We listened to 50s music. That was about it. Guy Lombardo from the 20s or 30s. And um, just 
I mean, very simple living. Well, it was very simple living, but very structured. So, um, you know, at dinner time, we all have to take a bath before dinner. Mm-hmm. And then we'd have dinner and my dad would always let me go out. I wanted to do just a little bit more fishing. So I would go hop in. I had a little wooden boat with a little 4.5 on the back of it, Johnson. Mm-hmm. And I would go out in my nightgown with a life vest on and fish until dark. And up in Canada, it didn't get dark until nine o'clock. And then when it started, that sun started going below the horizon, dad would go, hooey. And I knew <laughs> across the lake, that was my call that mm-hmm. it was time to go to bed. And I would come in with my little stringer of fish in my nightgown, mm-hmm. um, just tickled pink. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I don't know many young girls that are taking a little boat out at about eight years old. Yeah. So you were saying you felt like, you know, I've, I've heard people say it's genetic and I think they're just, I think what they mean is there's just, it was just something resonated in them that, that, that they couldn't place their finger on. Like it was just a part of who they were. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, I think everybody talks about environment and you're talking about your upbringing for you. Was it that freedom that your dad gave you that you feel like helped you fall in love with it? I mean, there's a lot of people who they want their kids to fall in love with the outdoors. What do you think kind of kindled that, I guess, from, from your parents' side of things? You know, my dad did a great job of me. He just wanted to be with his three children and he made everything an adventure. Even getting up in the dark to go duck hunting. Mm -hmm. You know, when we were young, we would be, oh, dad, no. But he would have hot chocolate waiting Mm -hmm. and then he would bribe us with candy once we were in the blind, you Mm -hmm. know, and he made it so much fun that even though we were waking up at four o'clock in the morning, it was just a joy to be with mm-hmm. him. And he, you could tell that he got great joy of having the three of us with him. I think that's really helpful because, you know, I, I fish with, with my daughters, I mean, my five-year-old, and it can be really challenging to not get frustrated. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you love them and you want them to be there, but, you know, you're talking about bringing the candy and the hot chocolate. Were there other things he did that you felt like helped him? Was he very patient naturally? Or, or, or what are some other things, too, that you felt like just in looking back, that very patient and like I said my sister didn't quite have the the drive for fishing that I did Mm -hmm. and he was wonderful in allowing her to be distracted with other things like Mm -hmm. he wasn't forcing her to fish and I've figured that out I have six nieces and a nephew and I take them fishing and Mm -hmm. I I face the same thing a little frustration because I'm like hardcore I'm like gas 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 but Micah for example one of my nieces doesn't like to fish. She just mm-hmm. does not like it. So I've made her tackle box queen. She loves the tackle. She loves the color. She loves the glitter. So I have her go through my tackle box and organize things mm-hmm. for me. And so I've kind of, a, and my, I think my dad did the same thing. That wasn't a pressure to fish. It was about being together. So mm-hmm. it wasn't about the sport, whether it was hunting or fishing or whatever. It was about being together. And you had mentioned that, you know, that, that you guys, it was very structured. I would imagine that that structure has helped you in life as an angler as you've you know whether it's putting together a trip or trying to chase a certain world record i mean in what ways do you feel like maybe that aspect of things has really helped you Mm. well so the funny thing is is while i am structured in my fishing and you know all my fly boxes are meticulous Mm -hmm. and so forth but actually i'm not Um, I'm actually quite a mess and I'm an artist. That's Mm -hmm. kind of my background. I went to Vanderbilt University, studied leadership, but I'm also 
to study studio art. Mm -hmm. So I think the artist side of me, I have both left and right brain working, mm -hmm. are always at conflict. My guides will tell, I don't know if any of them told on me, but um, <laughs> they call it the terrible mess of mare. Because when I walk onto a skiff, mm -hmm. I have stuff everywhere. I bring way too many rods, way too many fly boxes. Uh, and so that uh, is always a struggle going between the chaos of my mess and being structured. But I really do, I've taken away a lot of that from my upbringing. Because in order to achieve a goal, you have to be, we were talking the word linear, you have mm -hmm. to be on a line for success. And you can't go back and forth and be all over the place. And so I like that structure. Yeah. And I, and I want to kind of dive a little bit more into some of the things that you feel like help have helped you succeed and, and some of the goals that you've set. But when for you did it go from being something that you loved to do as a child to something that you really wanted to dedicate your life to? Mm. Well, so fishing actually took a good pause in my life. Um, so I, I loved fishing as a child. And we did, I mean, every summer we spent uh, in Canada and then on the weekends is much as we could get away on the weekends, we'd drive an hour outside of Houston to um, our little farm where we had bass tanks. And um, so I was fishing weekends, but once school started, teenage years hit, I got distracted. I mean, I think like a lot of teens do with being social, and I am very social, I like people a lot. Uh, fast forward college, I, you know, I, my dad also instilled in us a a work ethic that you work hard and so at the age of 16 I started working um, by 18 I was a licensed real estate uh, broker and um, as soon as I got out of college I had six offers and went straight to work and mm -hmm. so really the only times I was fishing during that those kind of high school college years were just on family vacations I wasn't seeking other ways to fish I was more or less hanging with friends and mm -hmm. doing the city life and work life. Uh, about an, a year after going into corporate America, I realized quickly that the pantyhose, back in those yeah. days we had to wear pantyhose, <laughs> was not for me. Yeah. And um, sitting under fluorescent lights, I couldn't do it. I had gotten invited to a, a paint your own pottery studio for some co-workers in Atlanta, where I was working mm. in real estate at the time, um, building apartments. And um, it was, a kind of a game changer for me. I had studied, as I told you, art, mm. and I saw this concept and I loved to paint, and I was like, God, this, this is maybe what I wanna do. Mm -hmm. So I talked to the owner and he was like, yeah, you should franchise one of ours. And I went home, told my parents that Thanksgiving, I was like, what would you think if I stopped real estate and opened a paint your own pottery studio? <laughs> my dad was like, like you could see the steam exiting his brain because wow. he was like, no, you've worked hard, you've put in so many years in commercial real estate development. Mm -hmm. This is, this is you're on track, you're gonna do great. And, you know, no, no retail, no, mm -hmm. no, no. Um, but I was, I was convinced. And mm -hmm. um, I, I realized too, as a oldest child and very independent, that I didn't wanna open somebody else's concept. I wanted to develop my own. Mm -hmm. So, a year and a half after college, I resigned from the corporate life of corporate America and wrote a business plan, raised money and capital. Mm -hmm. My parents, my dad's like, I'm not giving you a dollar. I want you to go out and raise it if this mm -hmm. is really what you want to do. 
because wow. I don't want you to be tied to me financially, which was a huge, huge gift that he gave mm-hmm. me was that financial independence. And um, I did. Mm-hmm. And I started my first store in 1998. Um, it was called the Mad Potter, and it was an instant success. And I, uh, you know, I can go into a huge long story. We could talk for yeah. four or five hours about business. But um, I had moved back to my hometown of Houston, Texas, and because there was no paint your own pottery studios there, there in Atlanta, there was twelve, and it was supporting wow. twelve. So I was like, okay, I've got a great opportunity here. I never thought I'd move back to Houston, but I knew the real estate there because I had mm-hmm. worked for a brokerage company during um, college. So within six months, uh, I was in the black and made plans to open my second. I opened a second a year after my first, then I opened a third, then I opened a fourth, then I started getting calls to franchise, so I did that. Mm-hmm. And so I just grew the business. Okay, wow. so let's let's get back to your main question. Yeah. Where did the fishing go and when did I decide to dedicate my life to it? Well, I'm immersed in uh, the Mad Potter and it's mm-hmm. doing well. Um, around that time, uh, my parents had bought a home down in Belize, and I started taking friends. United, which was then Continental, was having these weekend deals that you could mm-hmm. go down to Belize for like $100 from, from Houston. It was awesome. And wow. you, if you left on a Friday and came back on a Monday, you get these weekly deals. So. I would send them, anytime we got one for Belize City, I'd send it out to my friends. I'm like, who's in? And it, I would, without fail, have about 10 friends mm-hmm. that would be like, I'm in, I'm in, yeah, let's yeah. go down to the house. So that started happening. I started hosting my first trips, which I didn't realize I was doing at the time, mm-hmm. down to Belize. And um, I had started doing a little fishing when we bought the house down there and started fly fishing after college. I picked up fly fishing. I never had fly fished before college. And... Um, my friends were like, hey, I'll do that with you. And so we started fly fishing for bonefish. Wow. All right. So, I mean, I'm taking a really long time telling this story. But uh, so those were my first hosted trips. Yeah. Meanwhile, as an entrepreneur, the one thing that it allows you to do is to get away whenever, yeah. you, you know, really. You yeah. don't have to say, hey, can I get another week off? So the other thing I was doing was I was doing mission work mm-hmm. where... And I'm, I'm saying all this background so you can kind of see where, where I got my experience and how I got to where I am today. Mm-hmm. So I started doing mission work, and the first mission trip I ever went to was um, uh, to Russia. Mm. And um, it was life-changing for me. And we were working with orphans outside mm-hmm. of St. Petersburg at a sports camp. I did that for several years. The first year I went with my church. The second year, I, when I came home, my mom's like, my mom and dad came to pick me up from the airport and they're like, you've changed. And mm. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And my mom's like, you're glowing. And I'm like, well, it was super cool. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just amazing the impact of just, I can't speak the language, we had interpreters, but the touch, a hug, mm-hmm. like how far it goes. And so my mom's like, I wanna be on that trip. The next year, my dad's like, well, y'all aren't going without me, I'm going too. And so yeah. then it became a family thing. And as it grew, I started, forming my own teams Mm -hmm. and recruiting people again. Do you see a common theme here? Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) So, and then from Russia, um, I really started exploring what the orphan crisis was all about. Mm -hmm. And you can't look too far um, into why are there so many orphans without finding Africa and the AIDS pandemic. And Mm -hmm. so I ended up then doing mission work and raising teams to go into 
Africa, to South Africa in particular, and Zambia, and just teaching what I call friendship evangelism, where you go in and it's just sharing the love of God. Mm -hmm. And um, through health hygiene, um, and so teaching basics, brushing your teeth and washing your hands before preparing a meal. Um, well, but full circle to me with what you were saying with Russia and these children in the orphan crisis there that haven't mm -hmm. been held before, that have never mm -hmm. been touched, um, is, you know, you're going with your family and you said for you as a kid, you know, you go duck hunting, it was about being together. Mm-hmm. And to me, there's even an interesting thing about this value of community and family and being together. For you, when, when you say, okay, I got off the airplane and, and something had changed, you were glowing, was there something about the world that changed or something about the way you saw your own family? What, what changed? You know, I think it's, it's hard to explain it to people that maybe don't have a deep relationship with God, but mm -hmm. it's when you are loving someone with his love, mm -hmm. something changes. Mm. It's like, it's like Niagara Falls, like the water just flows through you. Mm. And those children were just so in need of touch and love. It's life-changing just sharing God's love with other people and seeing their lives, those smiles, mm. the just even, you know what we did a lot? Play games. We just played games with them and watching them laugh and no one takes the time. Mm. They're in organized institutions where it's, it's pretty, wow. it's pretty grim. Wow. And so before you were ever taking official, you know, trips to all these different destinations, for you, you were taking friends to Belize and you were mm -hmm. going to these places that you had these, these meaningful relationships with and these connections to like Russia. Is that really when you began to say, wow, there's something here with organizing trips? W where did that kind of stem from? No, it definitely still was not on my radar until 2005. Mm -hmm. And in 2005, my dad got invited on a group trip to the Seychelles Islands to go fish Alphonse. Mm. And my uncle was on that trip. It was all men. And you might have heard this story before, but they lost their 12th man at the last moment. And so they said, do you all know anybody that would fill in and take this spot? Mm -hmm. And my dad's like, yes, I'd love to take my daughter who is super passionate and really getting into fly fishing. I had never thrown a 10 weight or anything above. Mm -hmm. And their men were like, no, nope, no nope. man's drip, boys drip, no <laughs> girls allowed. And you know, my uncle spoke up for me. There was a couple of family friends that knew me and they're like, Oh no, I think she'll be good. She, there's mm -hmm. no complaining. She's gonna, she's gonna fish hard. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think they worry you bring somebody on that's going to want to go back at noon and, you know, sure. hang out in the lodge and mm -hmm. by the, you know, swimming pool and have cocktails. Um, and anyway, long story short, I did, I did make it on that trip Yeah. and I made it on into their group. And every year thereafter, my dad for Christmas, that was what I'd get from my family was a fishing trip of my dad. And once a year we would go somewhere amazing. And that's mm -hmm. my first exposure to fishing lodges. 
mm-hmm. my exposure to pulling together a group of, you know, friends to go places. And uh, so we, we did that for about 10 years. During that 10 years, about eight years in, I got a phone call. Oh, no. Okay, let me tell you. Yeah, this is a good story. So once my dad took me to the Seychelles, uh, it's like he's, he started turning on the faucet, mm. right? And, it, man, when, you, when he turned it, it wasn't a couple of drips. I mean, I came out, and I was like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, is this yeah. truly what fly fishing is all about? This is what I can catch on fly and GTs and milkfish and trigger wow. fish. And yeah. I was blown away by the species. Well, his friends saw that in me, but my dad's like, I'm not paying for you to go fishing all the time. You know, mm. I know you own your own business and you can travel whenever you want, but you're going to have to do it on your own nickel. Well, mm. you know, I'm still trying to get the Mad Potter humming. And I'm, I always said I'm getting pennies for pottery, but, mm-hmm. you know, I did well, but not well enough to go afford some of these trips that they were going on. But his friends were really great to me, and they would wait for opportunities where they someone bailed at the last minute and they would call me and they're like, Hey Meredith, do you want to go get on that, mm-hmm. that trip? Um, it's, it's only, you know, a quarter of the price. Well, this happened. Um, Phil Davis called me and said, Hey, Joe, Joe and I, um, are going to Bolivia, but my daughter can't come anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was dangerous. It was right around the time one of those diseases had come out and his mm-hmm. wife had put the kibosh on, um, his daughter going. So they're like, Hey, if you just will pay your airfare, we'd love for you to come to Bolivia. Well, it was a trip that I couldn't say no to. And yeah. it was like in two weeks' time. Yeah. So I was like, okay, let me rearrange my meetings. Let me get managers into all my stores, make sure everything's covered. But I'm there. And so I went to Bolivia. Uh, I want to say that was 2011. And while we were there, um, it, it was terrible fishing. Uh, lots of water. Uh, the river was nine feet high. So I, I went on this trip to Bolivia. Mm-hmm. I was definitely going to, you know, not miss this opportunity. And when we landed, um, I had, you know, done some research and figured out I wanted to hear about the Chamani Indians. And mm-hmm. my missionary background gave me, you know, a heart for the people. I always mm-hmm. want to know what we're walking into. And I had brought, you know, little gifts. I always bring soccer balls or mm-hmm. a big uh, thing to take with you when you yeah, go. Yeah. Um, I try not to bring candy because I've learned that the hard way is they don't they don't have great access to toothbrushes and stuff like yeah. that. And so you actually do more harm than good mm-hmm. um, by bringing sweets. So for anybody listening yeah. out there, just know, uh, think about games, think about things that are a little bit more... Um, less harmful yeah yeah that's that's something i think you know would be easy to overlook for sure just because yeah. you're so used to giving kids around the states candy i mean that's what, what a lot of people give their nieces and nephews but yeah you're, you would go in and connect with the try to connect to the communities and bring them a soccer ball or a, mm-hmm. some sort of game that's right that's right and soccer balls deflated and then i'd bring some pumps with some extra needles to pump them up and okay. so forth So when we landed, and I had read that the Chamani Indians were very shy, I knew that, but when we landed, something was off. Mm -hmm. I knew it, I sensed it. You felt a heaviness in the community, and they were on this grass airstrip where we land on the jungle floor, and they're always there to greet you. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was a sadness 
there. When I said, Mario, what's going on? Something's off in the village. Like, mm. something's off. What's going on? He just burst into tears crying. And he said, we had a tragic accident last week. We've had so much rain that the rivers rose up and there was a canoe going down and it hit a rock and, you know, the canoes there are dug out trees, literally dug mm -hmm. out trees. And when it hit the rock, it broke open and the two wow. clients got tossed and the native Indians got tossed and the guide Mario got tossed into the water of the a roaring river. And unfortunately, um, Modesto's father did not make it. Mm -hmm. And they do not, a lot of the adults don't know how to swim. Mm -hmm. It's crazy to me. It's crazy probably to most Americans listening because we, most of us grow up swimming. Mm -hmm. Well, there, even though they live on the side of a river, they believe, because they have lost friends and family before to drownings, that they believe that it has supernatural powers. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of them really don't know how to swim and keep away and have great respect for the river for that, but they mm. don't immerse themselves in it. That You know, they'll cross in shallow places or they'll bathe in it, but they, they don't, they're not swimmers. Okay, mm. so we go down, more rains come, we can't fish. So I get the guides and I'm like, hey, can we go over and just hang out in the village? So every day I kind of transform that fishing trip into a mission trip mm -hmm. and just went over and I would sit with this um, the son um, of the man that had passed away and his name was Modesto and I would sit with him and we would just mm -hmm. even though I, again I can't speak the Chimani language um, I always used to travel with before we had our awesome phones with photo albums and I would actually have a literal photo album which it was just it was stupid things. It was like me riding a horse and mm -hmm. it was like me doing funny things or cool things I had seen over the years in Africa or wherever. And I would just point and we, you know, some I purposely would put in there, be funny. And it was just a way yeah, that you yeah. can communicate. You know, it's kind of how we show our phones these days. Sure, yeah. But back then it was a little flip, you know, flip book. And um, so I got to know the community and I got to know the chiefs and some of the women in there. And I, I started to see their needs. So when mm. I got home from that trip, which was truly almost a bust, which happens, yeah, everyone yeah. needs to know. It's just like mm -hmm. when you show up to anywhere, you can't control the weather. You can control a lot of things, but you cannot control the weather. I called up the fly shop who had booked that trip for my friends, Phil and Joe. And I said, um, hey, do you think that they might untamed angling who owned the lodge, they would have any interest in me coming back and I would trade them mm -hmm. to kind of bring down some missionary supplies and teach swimming. I was, I was a triathlete and I was a very competitive swimmer mm -hmm. and I would love to teach swimming to their children and to the community if they're willing, just mm -hmm. life-saving skills, not to be, you know, yeah, yeah. swimmer swimmers, but to how to starfish and how to, if you fall in, what do you do and how to not to panic and flip mm -hmm. on your back and and they were like, well, let's call Rodrigo and Marcelo. So I did. And they were like, oh, my gosh, we love that. That sounds mm -hmm. amazing. If you could bring a friend or two, then we'll, we'll allow you to come. Just pay for your flights. But we'd love that. Well, 
two months later, I returned to Bolivia in October of that year with um, Scott Crippen, who owns White's Tackle over in Florida, and um, his GM, Jeff. And they were my two friends. My first hosted, official hosted trip, I guess mm. you would say. <laughs> well, what I wasn't prepared for, though, was the resistance that I would meet when trying to teach swimming. They didn't want to swim. No one wanted mm. near the water. But we'd still, what I would do is we'd fish in the mornings, and it was awesome fishing. That Golden yeah. Dorado fishing is unbelievable. And if you haven't done that, yeah. put that one on your bucket list because it's it's really cool. They're very aggressive apex predators, and they jump. Any any fish that jumps yeah, yeah. Is, a, is a friend of mine. And it was a great fishing trip. But in the afternoons, I would get with Fernando, the head guide at the time, who actually even spoke some Chamani, and mm. we'd go over. And I had brought underwear. I mean, things that are kind of sound strange to the outsider, but they didn't, they needed children's underwear. And I, mm. I had brought hair ribbons and hair ties and fingernail polish and all sorts of things for the community and more soccer balls. Mm -hmm. And so I would go over there and almost kind of a little bit bribe them to yeah. try to get them into the water. <laughs> and, yeah. um, it, and it really, it really didn't work. I, you know, I went in with my American ideals of how this was all going to go down, and um, I had to respond to the culture and my surroundings of what was going on, and so I knew I was kind of um, facing an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. But, oh, here, this is really cute, too, though. When we landed um, for that week, though, I had gotten donated from Academy Sports Outdoor a bunch of goggles, like swim goggles swim for goggles. kids. Yeah, yeah. So I had passed out, like I had brought 50 pairs. Well, I don't know, they didn't know what swim goggles were. So all week long, they wore their swim goggles as like sunglasses. Mm -hmm. So all the kids were walking around the village mm -hmm. in goggles, not knowing that you, they're for the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was really cute, it was really cute. That's funny, but wow. Finally on the last day, Fernando, and he was such a help on this, got the whole community and I had about a team of like 10 kids that I had convinced, Fernando and I had together convinced mm -hmm. to come down and I, and I taught the basics of how to survival skills. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing because the visual I have in my head is I'm down there and I'm in a full on, <laughs> I laugh now because it probably I looked ridiculous, a full on, I had a, because I was doing triathlons, I had the full wetsuit. Mm -hmm. There were these, there was rumors of these little like urchins that yeah. can crawl up your, yeah. <laughs> and if, once they go up there, they're not coming out. Yeah. They have kind of like a barb arrow kind of <sighs> thing. And so I had this fear of those. And then there's also, they have a, um, a stingray down there. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to protect myself. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I'm in this total rubber outfit. Meanwhile, all the kids are in their <laughs> underwear. You yeah, know? yeah. And, um, and I'm looking up and I, I mean, it's a visual I'll never forget. And there's like a, a hundred of the villagers just watching huh. as I'm working with these 10 kids and just wow. kind of, they're all in kind of all of what I'm doing in my rubber black suit. Yeah. But, uh, but they did do it and it, you know, and I, I learned a lot from that mm -hmm. trip and going in with American ideals of how I was gonna save the world and, you know, and actually I think they taught me um, just a, a new respect for the culture and to go in and really do your research before coming in and just trying to implement new things into their world. Yeah, yeah and from there for you, it was continuing to build trips and, and kind of go off that experience and kind of, creating your own travel 
company. Do you call it a travel company, a travel agency? So it's actually not, that's not exactly what happened. So I, we went on, on that trip, there was a photographer by the name Matt Jones, and mm -hmm. he was a photographer for Tailwater Magazine out of Dallas, Texas. Mm -hmm. And he was supposed to be photographing some ladies that were um, down there fishing and for political reasons between um, outfitters, uh, he was not allowed to go and follow these other outfitters' clients. Mm -hmm. So he was down there, a professional photographer without any subjects to photograph. So he mm -hmm. asked Scott, Jeff and I, if we could be his, his models, I guess, yeah. for the week. And we were like, sure, I mean, come on. There's three of us, so that works perfectly. You're our fourth, uh -huh. why don't you come along? We hit it off right away, Matt and I did. Mm -hmm. And so Matt got home from that trip and he told his boss, David Leake at Tailwaters, he's like, hey, I met this girl. I know you're about to have your third child. You're not gonna be able to host trips as much as you want to. This girl would be a perfect host. She's been a lot of places. She knows places, she's traveled, she recruits people. Mm -hmm. Why don't you talk to her? So David and I talked within a month, I was, I had signed on to start hosting trips for Tailwaters Travel out of Dallas, Texas. And for the next several years, I did that. And I'd go on about five or six trips that David would organize mm -hmm. and, um, and host them for him because he was home with three little kids and couldn't get away as much as he had. And I'm single and was a little bit more available and yeah. again, was running my company at the time. So that's really truly how that happened. Yeah. Hosting trips for David, I had started doing posting. Instagram came out somewhere around that time and I had started posting and I was getting a lot of requests from women for a women's trip. Hmm. I'm like, no, no. I just, I mean, nothing against women, yeah. but I'm like, I like to fish and I want to fish and mm -hmm. I want to fish dawn to dusk and I don't know many women out there that want to do the same thing. And so I kind of dug in my heels and mm -hmm. David's meanwhile saying, hey, you really, we're getting requests too at Tailwater. So not only are you getting it on Instagram, but we're getting it too. So I said to David, I was like, okay, I'll make a deal with you. I'm not doing a trout trip. I'll see if women are really serious. I'm going to do a permit trip and then we'll find out who's really, really a serious yeah, angler. Yeah. Cause you know, permit, are they one of the hardest or are they one of the hardest? <laughs> I mean, they are really, I mean, difficult and a challenge. And I love that about them. So I put it out there and we sold out almost instantly. And I'm like, wow, wow. okay. This is interesting. This is very interesting. We'll see who these ladies are. And mm -hmm. I didn't know them. I mean, a few of them I knew, one girl from Houston who I had grown up with but hadn't seen in years, and mm -hmm. she didn't even follow me, but she was on her husband's Instagram one day saying, huh, let's see who you follow, and saw me, and I was marketing that trip, and she's mm -hmm. like, I'm going on that trip. And he goes, what? You don't fly fish? And she's like, yeah, but I want to. And so he's like, great, go. Yeah. And so she came, and then, she recruited a couple of her friends who I ended up, you know, having some connections with, but they all found me on Instagram. Is yeah. that not crazy? Yeah. I mean, just how the, how it's shaping the world too and changing and connecting people and it's, it just blows my mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, these girls, these women were so bold. I don't, I don't know if I would have signed up to go by myself on a trip, not knowing somebody 
another soul. But that that also speaks to, you know, you were like, I don't know if there's going to be serious anglers, just a little mm -hmm. hesitant based off your experiences in life. And then when you when you hit a vacuum where there's not something that a lot that that enough people want, you know, all of a sudden it's like, boom, it starts clicking. So it sounds like that's what happened was you you put it out there and, and very quickly there were some people who had been looking for something, even if they didn't know it, were looking for something yeah. just like that. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So we show up in Mexico and I'm like very curious about who, who, who are these women? And um, it was one of the most uh, special weeks of my life. Hmm that group of women and they nicknamed themselves mayors, strippers and hookers, which I think is funny. And we still, we Did are. Did you guys a, have t-shirts or, or? No, I'm no, kidding, I'm no, kidding, we, I'm should, kidding. we should. <laughs> They've talked about it, but we yeah. are still on a text chain. Those, those 11 ladies and I still on a text chain today. And there's not a week that goes by that we're not texting one another. Wow. And that, and they were hardcore, all mm. of them. And I, I pulled, I mean, people were coming from as far mm. as Alaska, um, we were up Northeast, Florida, Texas. I mean, we had the gamut. It was incredible, the pull, and, but yet the camaraderie that mm -hmm. was found on this trip, these trips. And I did, I mean, I pulled a lot of what I had done in Belize where I used to assign two bartenders each night mm -hmm. and I would do a theme night. I carried that over into my ladies' trips. I don't do it with my men, but we have 80s night and reggae night, and yeah. um, they're responsible for coming up with a drink concoction or recipe for the evening. Mm -hmm. They have to be in costume to serve it. They have to bring little, um, you know, like 80s night, everyone brings uh, lace bows like Madonna used to wear for their hair, so yeah. everyone can <laughs> look like they're in the 80s. Um, and they have to have a playlist for the evening. And I usually join two women together that don't know each other so that they collaborate on these costumes before they come. And it yeah. just starts to connect the group before we actually mm -hmm. um, step foot in the country or um, at the lodge. And it was, um, it's been successful. And since then I've done several more. The demand was there mm -hmm. and I found that I, I actually really loved hosting women's trips and mm -hmm. it wasn't, they weren't asking me to go back to the dock at noon. And I was like, okay, I found some like-minded women out there and women that also just wanted to learn mm -hmm. that never, I guess, had had the opportunity. I'm not quite sure, you know, but they felt safe in coming on a women's trip. Mm -hmm. So that spiraled the first one. And um, I did a one year reunion. Half the ladies signed right back up to go to the same lodge for the same frustrating permit. Um, and then I recruited some new ones off Instagram again, wow. not knowing them. And they came in not knowing another soul. And then I took another group to the Bahamas and it's just, it, it keeps going. I've got, and then this is kind of funny mm -hmm. though, Hunter is okay. Now I've been doing women's trip, but they've gone home and they've had so much fun that the husbands, the ones that are married our boyfriends yeah. are like, well, you're not going on another one without me. So now I'm doing all these couples trips. So I took oh, interesting. Yeah. whole couples. Okay. I yeah. did a couples trip down to Argentina, um, a couple months right after the, um, the ladies trip. Cause their husbands are like, okay, well, what about me? Mm -hmm. uh, I want in. And then, uh, I've done, I'm doing a couple's trip to Mexico cause the men want the permit too. Yeah. of the original strippers and hookers. So uh, I've got all those girls that want to bring yeah. their husbands. And then I'm taking the kind of the same crew down to um, Brazil next year. 
for another couple's trip. I mean, it's just, it's so fun to see it kind of. Yeah. And then now the husbands are like, hey, will you do a guy's guys trip with us? Will you just get all the husbands together and now we'll go? And they've all become <laughs> friends. Like, yeah. it's the coolest, yeah. weirdest, fun thing. Yeah, but there's a, a sense of community there. And I think that's something that is kind of a theme that, that I've heard through through your story is just, it's not just about the places, you know, the people. And, you know, I've, I've kind of followed some of those trips that you've done and seen some of the fun things that you guys do. And it's very obvious that, that you know, of course you want to be serious about fishing, but you want to have a lot of fun. And the community piece, I think that's the piece that people really get connected to. When I think about traveling with my friends or my, my dad, I get a chance to travel with my dad a good bit. We just had a trip to uh, not near as far as the places mentioned, but we just got a trip together. And, you know, those, it's all the in-between moments, I think, too, that really pull it together. So Absolutely. That's what the people were looking for. Um, so I got a, a long list of kind of rapid-fire questions that okay. I'm stocking up because it's, it's such a great story, um, you know, from the business side of things, of the, the travel, which a lot of people are interested in, you know, whether they're interested in taking a trip or maybe some people are interested in planning trips, um, guides who want to be able to kind of step into that space. Um, but for you, where did the world record chasing come in? Mm. Was that something that you fell into by accident? Was it something that you woke up and intentionally chose to pursue? How did that happen? All right. So going back, it's a great question. Going back to my dad's friends that mm -hmm. were trying to help enable my addiction <laughs> by finding <laughs> opportunities for me to fish at low cost, mm -hmm. um, was a trip to the Bahamas. And the man, Paul, that owns Deepwater K is a Houstonian. Mm -hmm. Some of my dad's friends had been invited by Paul to go for the week, or I think we went for five days, to go fish at Deepwater, oh, Deep, sorry, to go fish at Deepwater K. And they had room for two more, so they called me, mm -hmm. and they were like, hey, we've got a flight, sorry, covered, got free lodging and meals, you just need to pay for the fishing guide. Mm -hmm. And you can bring a friend so y'all can split it. So I'm like, again. Yeah, of course. Hand, hands up. Yeah, um, yeah. When are we going? So, and I had never been to the Bahamas before, so I'm like, I'm in. Mm -hmm. I grabbed my friend Steve, came with me, and we went over and uh, to the Bahamas. And as we're landing on the airstrip there, Paul says, I have a surprise for you. And I, we were like, okay, what? Mm -hmm. And he goes, we are the only ones on the island this week except for the plane that just landed in front of us. And it's a TV crew and an actor by the name of Liam Neeson. And, I, and all the men are like, oh, my gosh, Liam Neeson. I mean, I think <laughs> men have a bigger man crush on Liam. You oh, know, yeah, I, definitely. He's an action figure, you know. And so I, don't, I, I watch rom-coms. I'll be real honest. Yeah. I'm your typical girl. Um, so I hadn't seen a lot of his movies except mm -hmm. for Love Actually, which is a great movie. Uh, and so we're all getting, and so everyone's very stoked and excited. Mm -hmm. And so as we're getting off the plane, um, we all come together and they're processing our passports. And Liam comes over and he's like, are you here to fly fish? And he does it in his, his attractive. Cool accent. Yeah, yes, yeah, sure. Irish accent. And I said, I am. And he goes, do you do a lot of saltwater fishing? Because he saw I have a Dakota fish pond bag with stickers all over it. And so... Mm -hmm. He says, it looks like you've been all over and you've done a lot of fishing. Do you, have you, do, you do a lot of salt water? And I said, I do. And he goes, well, I don't. And they're filming me. Can you help me and work with me on my cast? Wow. And I was like, sure. You know, absolutely. So there was about 10 of us there at the lodge that week. And we all just hit it off. The TV yeah. guys um, and everyone. 
And as they were watching me in the afternoons give Liam lessons on double mm -hmm. hauling, it was really where he needed help just to be able to cut through the wind. It was mm -hmm. a little windy that week. And he was filming a show called Buccaneers and Bones for the Outdoor Channel. And the producers of the show saw me working with them and casting myself. And they were like, who are you? Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I'm Meredith McCord. Mm -hmm. I'm from Houston, Texas, and I own pottery shops. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 who are, who are you in the fishing world? And I'm like, no, 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 I just, I love to fish. Mm -hmm. And this was before I had started hosting travel. Mm -hmm. So this is about 2010, 2011. It was a, everything kind of happened simultaneously around that time. And they're like, have you ever thought about doing TV work? And I'm like, well, what is, does that mean mm -hmm. free fishing? And they were like, well, you, yeah, like yeah. We, we underwrite it. <laughs> and I was like, what, what about the travel and the plane costs? And mm. they, they were like, yep, that too. I'm like, well, yeah, I'll think about doing TV work. I mean, mm. what do y'all have in mind? And they're like, well, we'd love for you to be on something like Buccaneers and Bones, but you gotta be somebody. Mm. And you gotta be somebody so that people, when they tune in, can look up to you and say, okay, she comes from a place of you know, knowledge or authority, but if mm. we can't just, put Joe Schmo up on the TV and be like, oh, you mm -hmm. should listen to her or him. I, I got what they were saying, but I was like, well, how do you become somebody? I mean, I don't yeah. know. I just, I like to fish. Yeah. And it was at dinner, at the dinner table that night after they had asked me all this and they had gone ahead and done a screen test, even though I was still a nobody, uh, to see if I was any good in front of the camera. And I didn't break it, so I think I was okay. And um, they said, what about world records? And I'm like, like the Guinness Book of World Records? Like, I, I, I don't mm -hmm. know what you're talking about. And they're like, no, like the IGFA world records. And I was like, there's world records for fish? I mean, yeah. I'm not gonna catch the biggest fish out there. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. It's actually very cool. There's all these different records for each species. And so they mm -hmm. kind of started explaining it to me. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm competitive. As I mentioned before, yeah. I'm a triathlete. Um, being the oldest in my family and having siblings and always fishing. Mm -hmm. I was always trying to win, <laughs> be the best, be the fastest, mm -hmm. catch the most. And, um, and so I was like intrigued by this. And they had told me that they had just added women, which is kind of weird because does a fish really know mm. who's pulling on it, a male or female? No, yeah. no. So I think it's kind of silly. Mm -hmm. I don't think it needs to be divided out, but they had, you know, just yeah. like in a marathon, you have a male winner or a female winner, you know, so they, they had divided it out, leaving women with a lot of opportunity, mm -hmm. bottom line. So they said, if you, if you can go out and get a world record, you're on the show. I'm like, huh. okay, well that's, that's a motivational, you know, yeah. fact. So yeah. yes, I, I'm going to take that challenge. I had just fished with Greg Dini and Jerome Brewer over in Apalachicola, mm -hmm. over close to you, yeah. that summer. They had mentioned their bull reds of Louisiana. And I, I knew redfish from Texas, but I mm -hmm. didn't know what a bull red was. And they had showed me some pictures. And I'm like, oh, man, I want to try that. And they yeah. explained to me how they kind of lay up and they float and they're on the surface. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, I'm in. So I had booked some days with um, Greg. And he said, I think you could get the world record. Greg and I were talking. Mm -hmm. And he had looked it up. And he's like, that's doable. That's yeah. super doable. I think I needed something a little over 28 pounds. And he's like, we're catching 30 pounders, you know, pretty mm -hmm. regularly. Long story short, it was not as easy 
as we thought mm -hmm. for multiple reasons. One, I couldn't find any tippet that was IGFA approved. And so lines were either over testing. I was sending lines to get tested with IGFA. IGFA, I will say, the International um, Game Fish Association, for those of you listening that don't mm -hmm. know, um, were uh, incredible and held my hand. When I told them, hey, this is, I want to try to get a world record, mm -hmm. they, they gave me so much help and knowledge from others who had gone before me. Mm -hmm. So I didn't feel alone in the game. Um, but it, but it was, I was having to learn on my own and tie my own knots and figure this out. And I had, I'll be honest, I had let my guides do a lot of that. But when I started going for this record, I was like, this is going to be on me. Mm -hmm. I want to tie my own. And um, so I couldn't find Tippet that wouldn't overtest. And then I finally found some. I'm not going to disclose the, the brand because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But um, it did say, hey, IGFA is certified. Mm -hmm. saying that it would break under 16. That's what I was going for. It was 16 pound um, redfish. So I broke off a good number with Greg that were definitely record potentials. Mm -hmm. uh, I found a couple of other guides who would, um, I had another guide, Christian Jurgens, who reached out to me. He heard I was looking for the record that I was looking for the record and he got an opportunity to go film with, um, do a shoot with Andy Anderson, a well-known photographer mm -hmm. who was putting together a book called Salt, um, of saltwater species. And he needed an angler and he goes, how about you come try to get that record? It's paid for. Again, yeah, I'm yeah. always looking for the deal, sure, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> and he's like, you come over and fish with me and let's try to get that record. Well, again, we didn't get it. Um, we had a hard time finding fish. It was bad weather for the shoot a little bit. Mm -hmm. We found some good fish, but not what we needed. Mm -hmm. Fast forward again, Christian really got, he loved the chase. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, come on, come back. I'll work a deal with you. Let's get you this record. December 1st, 2012, we had spent 11 days on the water over a course of the season. I had a seven o'clock flight at two o'clock. We saw her crawling, belly crawling on the sand flat. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, right on the edge, you know, of the ocean there and uh, made the cast and got her, got her that day. I mean, had to wow. race to catch my flight, but we knew the moment we hooked her, she was, she, she was, was it. And yeah. she was, she was 32 pounds, um, 0.58 okay. was her, her measurements. And I've since gone back and beat that one with Travis Huckabee, but uh, that's all it took. And mm -hmm. I called the producers at, at the Outdoor Channel and I said, well, I'm Meredith McCord record holder now. Mm -hmm. And they're like, done. Would you be in our season, mm -hmm. Buccane our next um, filming of Buccaneers and Bones? And that's how I started my, I guess, my TV world yeah, yeah. life. So, you know, I think from, from there, you know, okay, you're, you're trying to get these trips and these experiences and get the opportunities to do this. You catch that fish, you get an opportunity to go on that show. What do you, what, what drew you to it, the continual pursuit of it, wanting to go and get number two, three, four? Where are you at at this point? I mean. So that, that's a wonderful question, Hunter, and one that's very dear to me and mm -hmm. one that's, I think, very hard for people to understand my kind of mm -hmm. drive on the world records and 
the simple answer is my dad. Mm -hmm. When I caught that first one, again, it was December 1st, mm -hmm. and he was tickled pink. I mean, truly, he got so puffed up. Mm. He was so proud of me. Remember how structured I yeah, said yeah. he was? And he loved people with a, a goal mm -hmm. and a, a mission in mind. And then he loved watching people work hard to get there. And he knew how many lost fish I had had, mm -hmm. how many days I had spent, money I had spent to try mm -hmm. to get this one thing. Mm -hmm. And he loved that I was so dedicated, that um, I studied hard, reached out to people, got people to mentor me. IGFA, mm -hmm. Jack over there was very helpful. And I got it. And so at Christmas parties that Christmas, he'd go around being like, well, my daughter's a world record holder. And I yeah. could just see, I mean, it just, it, it made him proud. And mm -hmm. what child doesn't want to see that? Yeah, of course. Out of their parent. Um, <clears throat> so he said, I want to see you do this. Like, walk me through it. Mm -hmm. And we were about to go on a trip to the Seychelles that uh, March. And I said, okay, this is how I do it. And so I opened up the record books and kind of went through and I said, okay, what are we, what species are we going to be seeing? Let's look through the species that we're going to be targeting yeah. and see what the current records are and find out if any of them are what I call doable. Like mm -hmm. if they're soft records. And there were some that we wanted to pursue, I wanted mm -hmm. to pursue, and my dad was, you know, all on board. And yeah. he was very gracious and let me fish a lot of the days so that he could watch, you know, me try. Mm -hmm. And Yako Lucas put me on my second world record ever. That's where I met Yako. Okay. Full circle uh, there. Full circle. We've known each other since 2013 okay. um, at Farquhar. He put me on, which we didn't know. We actually misidentified the species. And once we submitted the picture to IGFA, they're like, actually, no, that's an all tackle record. The wow. largest one ever caught. And it was an island Trevally. So that was my second world record. And my dad, again, was just like, this is super cool. Yeah, like, yeah. is this all you have to do? Like, you just have to submit your tippet and you fill out the application and you take pictures. You don't have to kill the fish. And I'm like, no. Nope. Mm -hmm. And he's like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. So we went and I got a bluefin to volley and he just, yeah, I yeah, don't he know. Conne he connected with it he too. Did. Something I, you know, I, you know, I have, I have two girls and you know, we were in, even in your story, just talking about going out and connecting and doing it just about being together. And, and that's definitely a theme in the, in this kind of conversation, but you know, to get to do something like that. And, and even as I grow older, you know, my relationship with my dad looks different because I'm, I'm not, it looks different than mine to my daughter because I'm not five, you know? Yeah. But there's some things that don't, don't look that different, you know, like the, just having a common little goal together mm -hmm. and chasing that goal and getting that experience and shared dealing it, with shared, yeah, experience. shared experience. So exactly right. So that was really what for you kind of, you got that emotional connection with, mm -hmm. with your father and that kind of led to, to, I guess where you, where you are today. It, it it did. I so I kind of enjoyed the challenge too mm -hmm. because Hunter, I was learning really all sorts of knots, and as I started playing around with different tippets and lighter mm -hmm. and lighter tippets, you have to adjust. Knots don't look the same, mm -hmm. and to tie on that bite tippet, you know, you you've got to use different knots, and so. I loved that it was taking my fly fishing game to a whole new level. Mm -hmm. It was pushing me um, outside of my comfort of tying, doing the same thing all mm -hmm. the time. 
and I loved that. I loved the challenge. So I started playing around with just records around me, you know, and right in my backyard. And there was a great guide and captain on the Trinity River an hour from my house that had all sorts of world records and right mm-hmm. in his fishery there. Um, weird ones, Gaspergoose, mm-hmm. Gar, Carp, <laughs> you name it. And yeah. I was doing conventional and I was doing fly fishing with him. And, we, and I was just starting to rack them in. And it, yeah. it was kind of silly because a lot of them were vacant because remember I had told you that they had just yeah. uh, separated it out the freshwater. Saltwater had been separated for some time, but I don't mm-hmm. know why freshwater kind of came later. So it was kind of a slam dunk, and I was just having fun with it, and it just gave, it kind of gave us purpose, and I found guides that really liked the challenge, too. It kind of changed up their everyday game from doing the same thing. Okay, well, we're just out to catch fish today. No, we're, we're looking for a particular fish, mm-hmm. and what does that fish look like, and we're, we're going to have to catch it in a particular way. Mm-hmm. And I think that really annoys a lot of guides, and they I get a lot of flack for chasing records mm-hmm. but there's those few that i connect with that love the challenge yeah it's not easy well, and and i was going to ask on that from your perspective where does the flack come from i think to a lot of people if we were to even walk around here at icast to a lot of people they wouldn't even understand what's the controversy mm-hmm. i mean I, but to people who are further in the industry there 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 is this kind of back and forth from your angle what do you you know what do you feel like is driving that? Oh, I would say there's several things. I would say, number one, the misnomer that you have to kill the fish mm-hmm. uh, or you're abusing the fish. Well, a lot of the fish that I'm, I mean, and I've come a long way from mm-hmm. hanging fish on boga to now fishing with slings. And then you can lift the sling with the fish wet in, with a boga and you can t- do deduct yeah the net or the sling which um i will admit i didn't do that Mm -hmm. at the beginning i mean i've come a long way but you got to do it i mean the wrong way to almost learn the right way or do your research Mm -hmm. and um so i'd say that mishandling of fish hanging things you know Mm -hmm. a big fish from boga can really hurt their vertebrae so i you know i don't do that anymore but that's foreseen um I I think the most common one outside of the killing is that what I hear from people, you're taking the fun out of it. Hmm. But it's not their their game. It's mm-hmm. my game, and I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's like I explain to people, it's like everyone runs for a different reason. You might like to go for a jog mm-hmm. because you just like to clear your head. Some people might want to go for a run to lose weight. Some might want to do it to train for a marathon or a triathlon. We all run for different reasons. Well, we all fish in different for different reasons. And mm-hmm. I don't do record fishing all the time, but every now and then. And that really gets me back to what really drove the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, a year after I caught my second and third with my dad, we returned back to the Seychelles the following year with his men's group mm-hmm. to go, oh, no, no, we didn't. Sorry. No, we had gone with his men's group on that one. But the next year, I had started working for Tailwaters. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Keith from Alphonse mm-hmm. Fishing Company called me and he said, hey, we're opening up Cosmolito in a stove as, you know, working for Tailwaters. Will you come over and do a fam trip, a familiarization trip over here and come check out what we're doing mm-hmm. in the fishing over there? Well, you don't have to ask me twice, right? Mm-hmm. Especially when it comes to the Seychelles. So he said, but I would really appreciate if you could 
bring one paying client that would really help me, um, help me out and yeah, yeah. underwrite your costs. And I said, okay, done. And I started thinking of all the list of friends I was going to call. But then I was like, you know what? I'm going to call my dad. This is the first time that huh. I get to return the favor. He's underwritten some of these trips for me. Mm-hmm. Now I get to say, hey. Oh, and I did, I, we did get it. It wasn't full price, sorry. Mm-hmm. So I got it for a deal. And yeah. I, I got to return that favor. So I invited my dad. Mm-hmm. And he goes, let me call your mom. I'll call you right back. And sure enough, like 20 minutes later, she said, I can go. We're, <laughs> and this was like in three weeks, yeah, you know? Yeah. And so he's like, I'm free to go. Let's go. So we went and we had an amazing trip. Trip. Mm-hmm. Tri- Triples, uh, doubles, GTs. Mm. I mean, it was just GTs galore. Cosmolito, I mean, incredible, incredible fishery. Um, we get home from that trip, and Dad, usually on these trips, like all of us, we, we tend to be fed well. So mm. we eat a lot, and we always gain weight when we travel. But Dad came back and, I guess, weighed uh, when he got home, and he's like, I lost weight. And he was super proud of mm. himself and I'm like well it wasn't like he was yeah it wasn't yeah like, like I was, saw him he was eating just des- yeah, yeah no okay. he was eating desserts yeah. every night long story short he uh had stage four kidney cancer and wow. we didn't know and you did and on the trip yeah on the trip he we don't know he I think he had had it for years mm. but he got diagnosed a couple of months after that and um they they said hey you, you need to close up your cabin in Canada mm. and come on home it's this is serious. You, you don't have much time. Mm-hmm. And he did. He came on home, but he kept. He was forever the optimist, and it's like, mm-hmm. ah, it's bumping the road. We'll, we're going to treat this and get right over it. Mm-hmm. And uh, chemo is man, it's it's a doozy. Mm-hmm. And it it took him off the water. Mm-hmm. And um, so he told me go. Go fish for me. Hmm. You got to fish for the both of us now. And I did. I went crazy. Wow. It was my way of grieving, processing what I knew was coming. Hmm. And so as he would lay there, I would, you know, he just got so weak from the radiation chemo. I would come in with my iPad with pictures of fish hmm. I caught and stories of fish I had lost. And yeah. And he would ask me what record I was on, mm. you know, and and somewhere in that time that he was fighting his fight, I, I said, hey, I'm going to go get you 100 world records. And my goal mm. was to try to get it before he, he yeah. passed. But um, I was at 78 mm-hmm. when he died. And um, I didn't give up, though. I kept at it. Father's Day, 2016, about, what is that, eight months after he had passed, I was at our farm where he had taught me how to fish. And um, I caught a world record bass. (laughs) Not a big, huge one, but it was was a record. Yeah. On Father's Day, it was my 100th world record. Wow. So I knew he was looking down at that time, and he was saying, "Add a girl. That's my girl. Yeah. And I, sh- I you know, I should have stopped then, but I have a lot of joy yeah. chasing these. And I just, every time I get one, I feel a little bit of my dad with mm. me. 
I know most people don't understand. They just think I'm in it for the the numbers or the gain or whatever, mm-hmm. but that's what drives me. Yeah. Well, I think... Um, well, Sorry to get emotional. No, no, I mean, but that's... <laughs> I, that's that's why why I started the podcast was because partly because I wanted to learn and I wanted to become a better angler, but I also wanted to get to know people. I like to get to know people, but I think when you, you know, w- when I was growing up, I never had any negative associations with world records. I was like, you know, I was growing up playing sports, competing. I mean, you know, you know, bass tournaments are you know, all over the place and, and world records when I was younger, you know, were starting to become more talked about and easier for people to talk about on the internet and everything. And then I got a little bit, you know, grew, grew in, in what my understanding and began to work in the industry and, and realize and started to see the whole conversation around them and the controversy and people make blanket statements a lot, you know, well, people are just in it for their ego. You mm-hmm. hear that, you know, and, um, as if you couldn't be into guiding or Instagram or anything for your ego, you could be, you can make anything about your ego. Um, then the only way to know why someone's in it is to ask. And Amen. There's, Amen. there's a, there's not a lot of people who are willing to ask. And if you think you already know, then you won't ask. But yeah. to me, to, to hear that story, I think that, you know, that makes a, a lot of sense. And, you know, we all have things that are important to us and special to us. And we don't care if there's criticism or negativity. We're not doing it, you know, for them, for them. And, Mm -hmm. uh, what, what a great story. I, I, I got a couple other, uh, you know, kind of quick questions as we kind of wrap up and, you know, just thinking through, you know, I've interviewed a lot of guides and I've asked this question throughout the series a ton, but you're somebody it's interesting because you fish with so many guides, so many guides I've interviewed. I mean, I don't know, you've probably fished with at least a quarter I mean maybe more of the guys I've interviewed I don't know a lot a lot and ones that I haven't interviewed ones I hope to interview or I've Mm -hmm. shaken their hands and talked to them and um like many people you know told them I do a podcast and it takes yeah 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 like us yeah but uh they're like oh this guy's is he did he change his mind no um but um for you what what makes a great guide Mm, that's easy I've got five points And I know this because um, one of the things I do also to subsidize my passion, and I think that's a misnomer I'd like to just spell too, is Mm -hmm. that I'm out here just uh, a trust fund baby, which I'm not. Mm -hmm. Um, I've made my money. I worked hard. I Mm -hmm. sold my business, actually, that I told you about Mad Potter two and a half years ago, and that's when I've gone into hosting trips on my own. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had a lot more time, even more time available then, and that's when I really got serious about Um, building my own brand up. I'm still great friends with Tailwaters. So one of the other ways that I support my fishing addiction is I do lodge reviews. And when I go into a lodge, they hire me to come in. I take a look at the accommodations, the food, and I give them kind of secret shopper feedback. I don't post it. It's very confidential. But I also review each of their guides. And I review them on five points. Number one, communication. How well does the guide communicate with his clients where the fish is, how to strip, how to cast, whatever um, it might be, but communication. Mm-hmm. Um, number two is education. This is huge key that I think is missing out of a lot of guides that I see. You can't control the weather. Guides can't. I know they'd like to, but they mm-hmm. can't. I'd like to control the weather. They can't control necessarily 
if the angler is going to be able to cast or if they're going to be able to catch anything or the flow of the fish, you know, especially with tarpon fishing. It can be red hot one day and then all of a sudden you have a gap in the migration and it's Mm -hmm. dead. So education goes so far because what is that client, if they haven't caught a fish, have they come out, have they finished the day with anything? And you'd love to be able to say they learned how to cast better. Mm -hmm. Maybe they learned a new knot. Mm -hmm. Maybe, Maybe it doesn't have to do with fishing at all. Maybe it's someone telling them about the community in which they're fishing, you know, for these far far away places like Mexico or um, Argentina, share with them about the culture, Mm -hmm. you know, just educate. It's great. So they come off feeling like they've heard stories, just like your podcast. They've heard something. They've heard about the guide's life. Okay. So communication, education, um, just fishy skills. Yeah. They got to have skills. And I've fished with the whole gamut of skills and no (laughs) skills. Uh, And just fishing is reading the Mm -hmm. fish and positioning the boat correctly Mm -hmm. for the cast and so forth. Um, The the uh, the next one is photography skills. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but it's it's a wicked double-edged sword. I know we want to keep them wet. I know we want to do that. You also have to remember that this is this client could have been saving up for this trip all year long. This is what they've been sitting behind a desk for mm. all year. And when they catch that fish, yeah, you might have seen a thousand of those fish all year. And it's not as special. And it might be a small one to you, mm. but it's huge to them. Mm. It's a huge fish to them. And I can't tell you, okay, I'm going to say one. I'm not going to say his name, but when I caught my first 100 pound tarpon, I was. I mean, I was really going, I wanted one over the hundred mark mm-hmm. and I finally got it. And he's like, I'm not taking a picture. And we, I mean, you, you know, in Florida, you're, you're keeping them in the water. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I believe it will take away their soul. And I'm like, I, I, I don't think so. Can you please, please. I really, and this was when my dad was sick. I was like, yeah. please, please, can you just get a photo? So he's like, fine, give me your camera. And so he took one and it's, I'm, it's all cut off. I'm cut off one photo the fish is cut off on the other the third one's blurry so you have nothing from that trip that's annoying yeah i I think you've got to learn how to use an iphone Mm -hmm. make it simple and teach again go back to that education hey we're going to keep them in the water and when Mm -hmm. i say one two three lift we're going to lift them up this is how i want you to hold them don't Mm -hmm. squeeze their bellies you know like you this is teaching again a teaching operation opportunity in that photography and then the last one is just all-around friendliness. Mm-hmm. How friendly are you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I personally do not pay a guy to be yelled at. And mm-hmm. I have a very strong opinion about that. And I can't tell you the number of clients that come on my trips that have had guides actually yell at them. Mm-hmm. I've had a guide tell me I'm in the penalty box to sit down. Then I'm not allowed to make another cast until I think about what I've done. Shocking to me. And I'm paying this guy for that to be speaking to yeah. me like that. And I mean, and I hear, I mean, men are spoken to like that too. I thought mm-hmm. maybe, hey, it's just me because I'm a girl. No, 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 no. I think it happens more to men. Mm-hmm. So those are the, the friendliness the, is that kicker. That kicker. Yeah, sure. I mean, and, and uh, I think a lot of people who are younger, you know, they by nature, they can take better photos on iPhones because they've, they've grown up with photos. But, you know, around the, the conversation too that I've had so many, I mean, at dinner last night with some friends and, you know, people are trying to say, 
there, there are areas in particular that it's really important that people get educated on catch and release for species that, you know, I mean, tarpon, that's not as hard because, you know, that's, they're seen as a, you know, most people want to catch tarpon understand mm-hmm. to catch and release thing. But if you can, if you can capture that great photo without compromising the health of the fish, like you said, what are they taking home? You know, they might not be taking home all the meat that, right, that, right, that right, people right. expect, you know? And I mean, in my area too, you know, that's, it's a, it's a balance there because a lot of people, that's what they've associated fishing. It's very pragmatic. It's practical, you know, and, um, they, in their, in their mindset, they're saving up money and they want to be able to cook it and eat it. And, and I think that's a very nuanced conversation, fishery to fishery, a lot of circumstances, but if you can take that photography, you have a better shot too. If, if you're in a fishery where you really need to be fighting for catch and release, now all of a sudden you have, yeah, you, you, you're going to take this amazing photo home, but the fish is going to live on. So I think that's a, gr- a great point. So you mentioned earlier just having issues with leaders breaking. That was something I wanted to talk to you about. What advice do you have when it comes to selecting and thinking through tackle? Ooh, okay. So what I didn't tell you in that first world record that while I was fishing 16 and I was fishing 16 pound tippet on a spool that I had bought that said IGFA certified with the guarantee that it would break under 16. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what it actually broke off at when I sent it to IGFA, they test them all to make uh-huh. sure it qualified, right? Six pounds. <laughs> well, it's no wonder I was breaking off so yeah, many yeah. fish. And sure enough, yes, it did break under 16, but man, I was hoping it was gonna be a lot closer to 16. Yeah. I've had to go back and really, okay, so before I bought my line tester, which I bought at the beginning of COVID, because I knew I was going to have some time at home, and I'm like, I'm going to really figure out who has the best tippet, mm-hmm. and what, how true is it to what it's labeled as on the pa- package. Mm-hmm. No one, not one brand breaks at the strength that it's stated. Let me tell you one more time. When you buy 16 in the store, it is not breaking at 16. I tested over seven brands of mm-hmm. ones, names that you and I both know. The average ranking strength on 16 is 22 pounds. Ooh. Yeah, so when you're feeling good about catching a tarpon on 16, you're really catching a tarpon on 22. Yeah, wow, and tell me more about what it looks like to test that because I'm sure that some people are, are interested in, in maybe going down that road. Yeah, if you're interested in chasing world records, you don't have to go out and buy a machine. I do it. I I like the technical side Mm -hmm. of this chase and pursuits that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, But IGFA, you just send it to them. They don't charge you anything, and they will break it in five different places. This is interesting, too. Most spools of tippet, the smaller stools are the smaller spools, not stool. (laughs) That's a different kind of testing. Yeah, Yeah. that's definitely a different kind of testing. The smaller spools are more inconsistent Mm -hmm. than a larger spool. Interesting. So um, they, but you can send them whatever you want to. They'll go through your um, spool and they will test it at five different points and give you those variations in testing Mm -hmm. um, strengths. Now, what about knots or other, other elements to trying to you know really refine your tackle and make sure that you have as much strength as possible have you picked up anything there that that you would share oh immense amount um first of all you know really i think the the technical um ness of joining light tippet to heavy heavy bite tippet has been kind of the biggest game changer for me Mm. um and what i mean by that for those listening is that 
you know, when you're taking, if say I'm fishing 12 pound for tarpon, um, but I need a bite tippet of let's say 50 pounds, mm -hmm. cause I know I'm going for something a little larger. Uh, taking something of such small diameter to something a lot larger mm -hmm. and stiffer, because most of my tippet material, I use palatopus, which is a mono material, which is mm -hmm. very soft. It has a lot of stretch to it, which I personally like in the record chasing. That stretch gives me a lot of help on that first initial bite. Mm -hmm. um, but connecting those two, yes, I use kind of a spinoff of the Huffnagel. And I give a lot of credit and thanks to Andy Mill for taking me under his wings years ago mm -hmm. and teaching me a lot of what he knows. He's a, he's a great sharer of knowledge and information and he doesn't hold anything back and I really appreciate that and him for those secret knots, but they're not really secrets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was at dinner um, the other night with Rob Fordyce and he said, you know, there was a time when there really, really was secrets. Mm -hmm. And he's like, now it's different. Now there's all these refinements and you might refine something and ha but he's like, you know, it's kind of interesting that you said that too, just because Andy has been so generous with his book and you know now they're doing recording videos him and Nikki are recording different videos on how they do that so any other things that you would share from a what about gear maintenance how do you try to maintain your gear and take care of it uh what gear maintenance <laughs> no no, uh, no I'm kidding <laughs> you don't okay uh, you know um I do but I I actually try to buy the best of the best brands mm -hmm. um the brands that can sustain my kind of fishing which is 200 plus days a year on the water. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a lot of downtime in between my trips. And um, so no, I there's not a lot of my maintaining. On my Able reels, maybe every other couple of years, I'll lube up the cork. I, yeah. I per personally really love the old supers over the seal drags. Um, I, I like being able to get in um, and clean them, fix them myself. So if something goes wrong on those seal drags, it's harder to do so. Mm, that's good. Is that terrible? I mean, I no, definitely no, 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 put no. things in the shower with me and wash them off with no, clean no. water, but to uh, getting in there and... No, actually, I, a lot of the guys that that I've interviewed, they just spray stuff down and just let it ride. That's it. That's yeah. it. So in regards to that, it being like you said, some tested at six, some were, most of them were 22. What do you feel like would be worse? breaking off a fish that was a world record at us at, because it was testing at six or catching one and going through the emotion of thinking you had a world record and it actually coming back at 22. Oh, absolutely the latter. Oh, absolutely <laughs> the, the latter for sure. And that is actually why I brought, I bought my line tester is that for the first time ever, I was going after a fish that I maybe, well, I, I couldn't release it. Um, I was going for an offshore fish. I was going to challenge myself with the hardest record I believe in the world to get, which is a blue marlin on fly, mm -hmm. um, only given 12 inches of bite tippet, you know, on a huge marlin. And so the last thing I wanted to do was take a life of a fish, a mm -hmm. beautiful, gorgeous, pelagic fish, and have it over test. Mm -hmm. I mean, that would just be absolutely irresponsible on yeah. my part. So that's why I went out and bought the line tester. Um, I said I tested seven different lines, all that were over testing. So interesting enough to find one that tested under 20 pounds. You're actually allotted 10 kg, which is 22 pounds, but 
Um, they were all like 22.2, 22.3 on the 16. So I ended up using Scientific Angler's 12 pound hard mono was the only one that I could find that the variances between tests, you mm -hmm. don't want to just test that spool one time. You want to test it, you know, three, four, five times mm -hmm. to make sure that the whole spool is testing pretty close and you have very little variant mm -hmm. between test breaking strengths. So I ended up using that 12 pound for 20. Is that not crazy? Yeah. So don't believe your package. It's yeah. not It's not truthful. If you're trying to chase records, know what you're playing with. My last, my last question, I mean, we of course we could sit here for for hours. Um, but my last question is, if you could go back to yourself when you're sitting on that dock at the Lake Holm, mm -hmm. when you first started fishing, mm -hmm. is there any advice that you would give yourself? Gosh, that's a good one. Um, yes, and I'm going to, I'll weave it into a story that you and I were talking about earlier. And it would be, keep your chin up. Mm. People can get ugly mm -hmm. on social media. And I put myself out there, not for them. Mm -hmm. I put myself out there. My, I have a mission statement, mm -hmm. and it's to um, empower and inspire through making fishing fun and educating and taking people to great places and seeing this beautiful world God's created. Mm -hmm. And empower and inspire and... Um, about a year ago, I think it was, I got a phone call from Vince at Skinny Water Culture. Mm -hmm. And he's like, or no, no, he Facebooked me first. And he's like, hey, I just want to tell you, I just fished this nine-year-old little girl. And her name's Piper. And we were asking her, you know, who's inspired her. And she mentioned your name mm -hmm. and just said well, that you were her inspiration. And he's like, I thought you should know that. And to get that phone call for Vince mm -hmm. to take the time or to that message was message first and then we mm -hmm. call, we talked but he's, for Vince to take that time to Facebook message me and tell me that somebody that I mean we, we've met before but he doesn't know me well yeah um, it reminded me of why I do what I do mm -hmm. and so I picked up the phone and called Vince I'm like tell me about this like this yeah, nine year old yeah. little girl and she's looking for tarpon I mean this is amazing and Vince told me her story mm -hmm. and the story of her fishing with her dad. And it just resonated with me, of course, mm -hmm. as you've heard. Yeah, yeah. That it, that's, I think, a very special way is you also just said you got back from a trip with your dad. Mm -hmm. It's a special way of spending time together. Mm -hmm. And so I said, hey, do you, would you mind giving me her number? And so I called her up. Or actually, I FaceTimed her and her dad. And um, it was just so cool wow. to talk to this little girl and just hear her stories about her first redfish. And it just took me back to sitting on that dock, mm -hmm. you know, catching my fish as a young, young girl. Mm -hmm. And if, if I could be that voice that I would say to myself now, it's what I would say to Piper. Mm -hmm. Keep your chin up and keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. And I'm hoping I get a chance to fish with her soon. But yeah. it's just um, knowing that I'm inspiring just one little girl makes any negative feedback on the records or whatever it is that they're putting negativity out there it makes it all worth it yeah and you had a similar experience with one of my dad's clients who, who was a, a a female who's also a, a captain and she was in the area and you had heard you know that that 
she had saw you and everything and you took the time to call. And I think that says a lot about your desire to connect with people, which we've talked a lot about in this podcast. And Vince, it's one of the reasons I, I love working with Skinny Water Culture is because with that company, what I've seen Vince be most excited about the past year is not some sort of big, you know, famous social media, anything like that. Some guy that's doing that, it's Piper. It's yeah. there's an, at the, at the heart of skinny water culture, what the people are most fired up about is this nine year old girl who loves fishing. And if you ask Vince would represent what the company stands for more than a lot of guides. I think that's really neat that you took the time to talk to her. Well, it takes us back to that, that childhood and why we started fishing in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's not about the social media. I mean, yes, it is how I fill my trips and I'm yeah. going to continue to do that. But, um, no, I just love to fish. Yeah. <laughs> and I like to share it with people that are trapped behind their desks and whatever. Well, well, I'm grateful for this opportunity just to, for you to be vulnerable and to share with us, you know, some of your life experience and, and to take the time to uh, sit down with me today. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Hunter, for your great questions. Thanks again for listening to The Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy This is The Captain's Collective.